Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Carving It Up Live right here on Twitter, as well as the Carving It Up YouTube channel and the Grid Network YouTube channel. As always, I'm Bryson Carver. Great to be with you, as always. Without earbuds today, though. I, somehow, someway, I lost my, my earbuds. I usually hook into my mic, so uh, I'm going to have to play the, 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 the sound bites and the music and all that through my computer. So hopefully there's no technical issues. We'll be playing a little bit of music, obviously, later with Bryson's Best 10, my top 10 Super Bowls of all time. We got a Super Bowl, obviously, uh, in, in just a week and a half between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. I'll give you my top 10 Super Bowls ever in about 45 to 50 minutes. Also, I'll tell you, there's a lot of outrage, a lot of it, around Taylor Swift. It's it's ruining the broadcast experience. It's I can't enjoy the games now that they're showing her on screen. Well, the context behind that and really how little she's shown on screen is quite evident. I will detail that in a half hour at about 6.30 Eastern, 3.30 Pacific time. Also, more weird comments by Jerry Jones regarding the Dallas Cowboys offseason, how they're going to address it. I'll get into that. In about 10 to 15 minutes, and at the end of today's show, uh, the biggest non-acquisition, or I should say, I guess, retainment, so to speak, uh, just happened yesterday with Ben Johnson staying with the Detroit Lions. I will tell you exactly why they have officially, health permitting, obviously, knock on wood, they are officially in the 2024 AFC or NFC Championship game. Detroit's in, okay? I don't know if it's San Francisco's going to play him or somebody else, but the Detroit Lions are in the NFC Championship game next season. I'm going to try and go back-to-back on my picks in that regard. I'll detail that later in the show. But first, uh, it's a good day to be a Steelers fan. And it has been a divisive last 24 hours among Steelers Nation. I understand that. Because uh, the fact of the matter is, we have been looking for a creative offensive play caller for quite some time. Really trying to find a guy. I was a Todd Haley guy. I'm not even a, wasn't even a Steelers fan at that point. Um, so Steelers fans since July of, uh, of 2023. So uh, fellow Steelers fans, don't get on me for that. Okay, I'm new. Um, but the last like really creative, innovative Steelers OC was probably Bruce Arians back in the day before he went on to Indianapolis. Then he took the Cardinals job, won a Super Bowl at Tampa Bay as their head coach. They've been looking for that guy. And putting it mildly, Matt Canada was nowhere near that. Uh, Matt Canada's offense in Pittsburgh was among the worst offenses in all of football. They were bottom five in virtually every statistical category. They had minimal 300-yard games, no 400-yard games. Ironically, the first game the Steelers played after he was fired, and the Steelers don't fire coaches midseason, so that's when you know it was bad, was against the Cincinnati Bengals' first 400-yard game You know, for the Steelers. Most recent one came the game after they fired Matt Canada after having zero with him uh, to begin with. They hired Arthur Smith yesterday. Now, Arthur Smith, the last three years, has... Uh, had the occupation as the Atlanta Falcons head coach uh, since 2021. And before that, he was a Titans offensive coordinator. And a lot of Steelers fans were like, dang, we go from a guy who can't utilize George Pickens, Najee Harris, Jalen Warren, Deontay Johnson, all these guys, to a guy who just doesn't seem to want to give B. John Robinson the football. It's just, it's just really weird. Throw the ball at Kyle Pitts, uh, however, where, wherever you lean fantasy-wise in terms of who you got for your football team. And to that I say, sure, but this isn't comparing head coach to head coach or OC to OC. This is comparing failed OC Matt Canada to failed head coach Arthur Smith, who is a highly successful offensive coordinator with the Tennessee Titans. Before I even get into the numbers, you know how I know he was successful? You know how I know a lot of teams wanted uh, Arthur Smith? Diana Rossini, one of the most trusted reporters in all of the NFL, reported about a week ago that, and I remember even repeating this on the, sh- on the show leading up to this, was that up to at least seven teams, seven teams, that's almost a quarter of the league, 
were interested in, fi- in hiring Arthur Smith to be their new offensive coordinator. Obviously, Pittsburgh was one of them, or maybe they were an additional one, and we were the lucky bidders. Arthur Smith is now the OC of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So this isn't a situation where nobody's really interested. It's not like some of Belichick's assistants where nobody's really in line to hire them, <laughs> but because they're loyal to Bill, Bill's loyal to them, they're sort of fall in line into that hierarchy in New England, they'll just work. Um, Arthur Smith is is not that guy. If you think about Arthur Smith in Tennessee, and I thought for certain that Mike Vrabel was going to get hired this cycle, and he may still get hired, but that he it was going to be sort of like a package deal. You were going to get Arthur Smith as your OC along with Mike Vrabel, who we know is a tremendous head coach, had success in Tennessee before they, in my mind, wrongly fired him. But if you look at Arthur Smith's two years as the Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator, mind you, this is with Ryan Tannehill, who's good. He's fine. He, he's, he can be good. He can be very good some days. He can be horrible some days. He is like Ryan Tannehill, peak Ryan Tannehill, excuse me, is the definition of an average quarterback. But you can win games. They got to an AFC title game with him. Here are, I'll get into Tannehill, but this, the Titans uh, numbers offensively in the two years that Arthur Smith is there. Here you go. This is what they look like, okay? And obviously, all graphics are provided by my man, Alfred Parsar Jr. of the Grid Network. Shout out to Alfred. That's my guy. The Titans under Arthur Smith. The Titans offense are under Arthur Smith. Average 27.9 points per game. That's top five in the league at number five. 379.7 yards per, uh, per game. Uh, that's fifth in the National Football League in that span. 6.14 yards per play. That is second in the NFL to the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, and then you get to some second, third level stats. These are more analytic based, but EPA fourth, success rate second, drop back EPA fourth, drop back success rate second, rushing EPA second. Now, some of that's Derrick Henry. Rushing success rate, again, some of that's Derrick Henry second. But look at that 29 turnovers in two years. The two years Arthur Smith was the OC in Pittsburgh. That's the third fewest in all of football. And you say, well, it's nice you have those numbers. Obviously, again, some of that's impacted by Derrick Henry because King Henry as peak was nothing short of a monster. But ultimately, okay, what are we looking at in terms of how he's been able to develop quarterbacks? Or not, not even develop quarterbacks, but get the best out of quarterbacks. I'm glad you asked. We can show you Ryan Tannehill with Arthur Smith, Ryan Tannehill without Arthur Smith. And by the way, you'll see here, he's played about 10, 12 games more without Arthur Smith than with him. And the numbers are night and day. Ryan Tannehill with Arthur Smith, 2019 and 2020. There's 28 games, okay? Ninth in touchdown passes, 26th in interceptions. 26th, that's a good thing. So, like, number one would have the most. 26th, you know, would be among the fewest. Uh, completed 67.9% of his passes. That's eighth in the NFL and had the second best. Ryan Tannehill had the second best pass rating in football with Arthur Smith as his OC. He was a top 10 quarterback. Do, do any of us believe Ryan Tannehill, even a couple years ago, two, three years ago, was a top 10 guy? Maybe you had people on the fringes who believe that. I always thought he was good, productive, far from top 10. Ninth in touchdowns, 26 in picks. And again, that's in a good way. Uh, eighth in completion percentage, number two in passer rating. I think Brady or Breeze was number one. Then we can show you Ryan Tannehill without Arthur Smith. That's 11 more games that he's played since Arthur Smith went to Atlanta. He went from, when you check the numbers here, he went from ninth in touchdown passes to 25th in touchdown passes in that span. He went from 26th in picks, so like bottom 10 in the league, to 14th in interceptions, tied for 14th. He went from a completion percentage of about 68%, which was 8th in the league, to 65.5%, which is 18th. 
in the league, and he went from a passer rating that was second at 112 to the high 80s, 26th. He was literally a different quarterback without Arthur Smith. Now, some Steelers fans would say, well, that's good news for Kenny Pickett. Well, it might be if the Steelers decide to roll with him as the full-time guy. I don't believe they should. I think we have too much quarterback talent in this upcoming draft to roll the ball out of third year with Kenny Pickett. I mean, we've seen the limitations there. And I like Kenny. I think he's a productive, low-end starter, high-end backup type guy. And some of his lack of success was due to Matt Canada. Uh, but I saw, <laughs> I saw Mason Rudolph come in and drop 30 over... Cincinnati, another 30-point game over Seattle, and for what it's worth, kept it competitive against a Bills team that America loved. Kenny Pickett couldn't do that. This is why I said, coming into this offseason, I said this is the most important offseason of Mike Tomlin's career. When it was announced uh, that he was going to stay, he's going to be retained as a Steelers head coach. I was like, okay, great. Now, how do we, because Mike Tomlin, for my criticism of him uh, in, in terms of his inability to adjust to the modern NFL, I've always, 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 always acknowledged, my gosh, the guy is, is. I mean, no losing seasons. I don't put as much stock in that stat as others do, but it's still highly impressive, and he's a brilliant defensive coach. But in today's NFL, when you do have a great defensive coach, see Houston with D'Amico Ryans, you need to get a great quarterback, talent, and a brilliant hopefully young OC. I was shocked to know Arthur Smith is just now in his 40s, so he's still he's still a young guy. He's about 41 years of age, uh, going on 42. So step one, check. We could show you one more time. We'll show you the numbers. Arthur Smith with Tennessee. Fifth in points per game, fifth in yards per game, second in yards per play, fourth in EPA, second in success rate, fourth in dropback EPA, second in dropback success rate, second in rushing EPA, second in rushing success rate, and the third fewest turnovers in football under Arthur Smith as the OC in Tennessee. So obviously he knows what he's doing from a play-calling perspective. Check. Step one. Done. Now go draft a quarterback. That's the next step for Pittsburgh. So first one, like the hire. Matter of fact, I really like the hire. Now you go draft a guy like a Michael Penix Jr., who you guys know my feeling on him. I love him. I think he's a, he's Jared Goff with a better arm. Or Bo Nix. Maybe even if Jaden Daniels were to fall that far. I actually think Jaden Daniels is going to go pretty high up in the draft. I think he's going to blow people away at the combine. Uh, potentially could be a higher draft pick than what Pittsburgh is at at 21st. You draft Bo Nix or you draft Michael Penix Jr. Or whatever highly touted young quarterback is available. Because I'm sorry, in an AFC that is once again showed itself to be the best conference of the league. Why? Because they have the best quarterbacks in the league. Mahomes, when healthy, Burrow, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen. I mean, you, you need great quarterback play. The fact that the Steelers have gotten to the playoffs, got to the playoffs this year with quarterbacks of the last name of Pickett, Trubisky, and Rudolph is, an, is a testament with bad play calling, by the way, is a testament to Mike Tomlin's ability to coach, have guys ready to play, somehow get you into the playoffs. But it's not going to get you further than that. And again, Mike Tomlin, as I often quote him, the standard is the standard. You're going to need to address the most important position. Otherwise, I mean, let's be honest. Pittsburgh's not sniffing Super Bowls. Or maybe that first one, potentially. They're darn sure not getting that second Super Bowl without Big Ben. They're not getting to a third Super Bowl in which they lost the Packers without Big Ben. You need great quarterback play now more than ever. I mean, Justin Herbert's awesome. The Chargers won five games. That's how stacked the AFC is. Now, there was horrible coaching. I get that, and Herbert got hurt, but point remaining. I mean, the NFC, and I like Jared Goff. You can get to an NFC title game and, and potentially win it. 
with Jared Goff at quarterback. You can get to the second round with Jordan Love, who had no previous or very little previous playoff experience. I'm sorry, Packer Nation. Sorry, Cheeseheads. Jordan Love's not getting to the divisional round in the AFC. It's a different ball game, different quarterbacks. When you're in a division, I know everybody's crap on an M today, but Lamar Jackson is still good at football. You have him in your division. You have Burrow in your division. Cleveland's a mess. They always screw up the quarterback position. You don't really have to worry about them. But you're not trying to be Cleveland. You're trying to be the team that has more Super Bowls than anybody except for New England, who you're tied with with six. You got Arthur Smith. Great. Now go draft a quarterback. That's the next step for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Don't draft a linebacker or a defensive back. You already got enough of those. Go, go draft the most important player in professional sports. And it is a, hopefully, you hope, a star franchise quarterback. Pittsburgh's had their history of those. Bradshaw, Roethlisberger, they know great quarterbacks in Pittsburgh. It's time to go get the next one. Got some comments. Uh, oh, Grady, okay, coming out swinging. Any thoughts on the WWE Vince McMahon story isn't getting more traction in the sports world? Some of that, Grady, is the fact that... <laughs> W is not technically sported. It is certainly an entertainment product, but given the fact that McMahon is is very, to my knowledge, I don't follow WWE that much. To my knowledge, he's not that much involved with uh, with the company anymore. Um, listen, am I shocked by the story? No, given his history, but uh, I I don't think it's. I, listen, WWE just closed the deal with Netflix, so I don't think it'll impact them that much. Uh, ba okay, Barry says, I'll be covering it Friday, Grady. Okay, and Barry follows wrestling much more than I do, so there you go. Appreciate that, uh, Barry. Grady, I hope my Patriots get, go get Tannehill and draft a guy. I'd want him as a vet quarterback to teach for a year. Sure. No, that that that's – Ryan Tannehill sort of entered that stage of his career where he's a bridge guy. Like, he, he's a guy who can come in, you could start him first half of the season, all of that season. Uh, it, we all anticipate New England's going to take a quarterback, so uh, we'll see, but – Listen, Pittsburgh has to trade up. Maybe one of these guys falls to them. Who knows? But Kenny Pickett's not going to cut it. And Russell Wilson, dang, sure ain't cutting it. I'd be fine with the Justin Fields. I could live with it. Um, you know, but was Chicago the problem in terms – I'm not going to hold necessarily the wins against Justin Fields, but, I mean, he had some pretty good players around him. Okay, he had Komet. He had DJ Moore. You know, good offensive line, good play caller. You know, feels so. Will it be better in Pittsburgh? Sure, because Pittsburgh's got some weapons, but I don't feel like you can get to that level that Pittsburgh is is accustomed to being at with Justin Fields, Kirk Cousins. Uh, yeah, we can make the playoffs with Kirk. If we can make the playoffs, with Mason Rudolph, we can darn sure make it with Kirk Cousins. But again, is that the standards that we're aiming for? Go get a guy. Go get. By the way, if he doesn't pan out, Pittsburgh would never do this because this isn't really within their DNA. But if he doesn't pan out, okay. Fine, pull an Arizona Cardinals and go draft Kyler Murray. They drafted Josh Rosen in 2018. Josh Rosen was awful. Okay, we messed up that pick. Let's go take Kyler Murray. It worked pretty well for him. And until Kyler played well at the end of the season, they were going to do it again and draft Caleb Williams, but they won some games at the end of the year that would hurt their draft position. But uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, see, Grady's just messing with me now. This Grady is, uh, y'all know, Grady's a good dude. But Grady's a troll at heart, okay? He says, can I interest you in Mac Jones for your first-round pick? As a Steelers fan, Bryson, um, yeah, like my first round pick in like 2094, sure. At that, that point, yes, I, we can have a, a Mac Jones. He, can he sweep the floors? Is, is, is he good at that? Can he sweep the floors in the locker room? That, that could work. You got a position for him there. No shots at the people who sweep floors in, in Pittsburgh. God bless them. Uh, but there you go. Okay. 
Oh boy. You know that this this is a team, man. It's it, they never fail to disappoint. They never fail to to get in the news. And their owner in particular. I think you know exactly who I'm talking about at this point. How about them cowboys? Yeah! So how about them cowboys are back in the news again? Uh Jerry Jones was speaking to the media uh recently and talking about the Cowboys offseason plans. And there was a lot that he said. We can, we're going to break down some of the things he said uh, regarding Dak Prescott, regarding Bill Belichick. Uh, but Jerry Jones, the owner slash general manager of the Dallas Cowboys, and obviously that's worked out uh, horribly. Um, he was talking, let's talk about the, the Dak thing first. Let's talk about what he said about Dak first. So he was talking about, um, you know, how they're going to address Dak's contract. This is the last year of Dak's uh, contract this upcoming year. He can be a free agent in 2025. And Dak, as I've talked about in the past, Dak and his agent, Todd France, God bless him, man, because they worked Jerry Jones. He got all the money he wanted. Guaranteed money was, was I think it was like 120 mil, something like that. So guaranteed money, great. Uh, he got the uh, no tag clause. So the Cowboys can't tag him, which... I think every player should have that in their contract. The tag sucks. I wish they'd get eliminated in the next CBA. Um, so no tag clause, no trade clause. So if Dallas wants to trade him to Carolina, Dak can say, nope, I'm going to veto that, and they can't do it. So Dak's in the, in the Dak's in the catbird seat, so to speak. He's in a good spot. Um, Jerry was talking about uh, the Dak's contract, though, and you know how the Cowboys will address uh, Dak Prescott's contract. We can, we can pull this up, um, what he was talking about. Uh, do we have it? We have the Dak Prescott uh, quote. I think we do. Um, okay, this is from the. Hang on, I, I lost it for a second. Let me pull this up, folks. Live, live podcasting. It was in, it was in my notes. For some reason I lost it. Uh, okay, so it's from Jerry Jones talking about Dak Prescott. He said, "Quote: Dak has done nothing to change my mind of any promise for the future." I think I said previously we we go as far as Dak takes us in the playoffs. Remember that? We'll go as far as Dak takes us. And that's how far we went. Okay? So my point is, is that doesn't change a thing. We'll go as far as Dak takes us. End quote. Uh, okay. And before that, by the way, Jerry Jones referred to, you know, we'd love to pay Dak. And then he says, we'll go as far as he takes us. And you see how far we went, which was obviously... A blowout loss to Green Bay in the first round, and then saying we'd love to bring him back. It's it's he's talking in circles. I mean, this it's 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 bad. So, listen, I, I will repeat a message today that I've repeated for like two or three years on this show is that uh, Dak Prescott or Tad Prescott. I think Tad Prescott may watch the show when I see some of his tweets. Um, Dak, Tad, whoever's watching the Prescott family. Okay, anybody, anybody who's who's with Dak or is involved with Dak, if you're watching this show, hear me loud, hear me clear. Tell my mans to get out of Dallas. Okay, tell my man to request a trade out of Dallas, because and by the way, Ceedee Lamb's agent, hey, you can tell him the same thing. Okay, you tell Jerry the same thing. Michael Parsons is a different matter. We can discuss him later, but those two in particular who literally dragged what was an untalented, average kind of old in some areas, kind of young in others. Cowboys offense, it was number four and it was number 88 that even got them to this point. Dak in particular, of course. I mean, you see C.D. Lamb's numbers with Dak, without Dak, they're night and day. It's once again Jerry Jones talking in circles. And Jerry Jones would also say, regarding the Cowboys' approach to this offseason. Now, this one was, this was interesting. 
he talked about how they want to go all in on the offseason. Uh, we can pull up that quote. He said, uh, t- talk about, you know, trying to, to renew guys' contracts and, and, and bring, bring dudes back. Jerry Jones said, uh, do we have this? Okay. It's from NFL.com right here. It's from NFL.com. Uh, Michael Baca, Baca, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He said, quote, uh, I, so my point is, I look at that and I thought we made a pretty good move four years ago when we hired Mike McCarthy and he's had some great in-season success. Now he's come up short three times and advanced us in the playoffs, but I like that fact that he's hanging around the rim and I like what the team has done to hang around the rim. So I think what the answer I would have is that I'm aware we're hanging on to the rim. We're not going to get the ball in, but when you hang around the rim, let's not discount hanging around the rim where we are right now with the players we've got. And I'm thinking about it from the whole look. And he said, uh, I would anticipate with looking ahead at our key contracts that we'd like to address, we will be all in. I would anticipate we will be all in at the end of this year. Okay, very repetitive. A lot to unpack there. You got to read carefully what Jerry Jones is saying. Because he said time and time again throughout the years, like this offseason, we're going to improve the team, this, this, this. He says, we're going to go all in. But read carefully between the lines. I would anticipate with looking at our ahead at our keep contracts that we'd like to address, we will be all in. With looking ahead at our key contracts we'd like to address. So Jerry is saying uh, that with the guys that are up for a deal, Dak, CD, Parsons, they're all getting paid. Now, by the way, you should pay Dak. You should pay CD Lamb. You should pay Micah Parsons, although these days, you know, with him consistently. I mean, Micah Parsons pulls an Aaron Rodgers at the end of seasons. You know, he's getting chippy with the media. He he plays poorly in the playoffs. He kind of disappears toward the end of the regular season, but everybody claims he's the next coming of an all-time great player at his position. Uh, maybe I should call, start calling him Micah Rodgers or something, or Aaron Parsons. Who knows? Micah Rodgers might, might sound better. That's who he is. But nonetheless... He's top five in pressures virtually every single season of his career. He's among the lead leaders in sacks every single year. You don't just let a player like Micah Parsons walk. You darn sure don't let a player to the caliber of CeeDee Lamb or Dak Prescott walk. You prefer to extend them. But he also talked about, this to me was the best one. Jerry Jones referring to uh, Bill Belichick. Now, mind you, Bill Belichick was fired, or uh, they mutually agreed to part ways, we'll put it that way, just a few days before the Cowboys playoff loss to Green Bay. So before the Cowboys playoff game, Belichick was on the market. Jerry Jones decided to retain McCarthy. However, when asked about Bill Belichick, Jory Epstein of Yahoo Sports, uh, shout out to her. This is the quote we got from Jerry about Belichick. Quote, I know him personally and I like him. There's no doubt in my mind that we could work together. None. None. End quote. Then why didn't you bring him in? That's that's what I'm, and it's it's why I floated the the theory. I think it's entirely possible that maybe Jerry Jones, when the season was over, did reach out in the days following the Cowboys' loss to Green Bay. Maybe he did reach out to a Bill Belichick and say, "Hey, would you consider it?" They would never work together because Bill Belichick would never even consider taking the Dallas Cowboys job for the same reasons that he didn't reportedly get the Atlanta job. Remember that I read last week? 
on Friday when Raheem Morris got the Falcons job that a big reason they didn't give the job to Belichick was because he wanted to be the GM because he's been that in New England for all these years. And they said, well, you, you butcher the draft and we'll have to fire our current GM who's done a good job in the draft. Uh, no, bye, see ya. We're, we're going to hire Raheem Morris who's going to focus on the coaching. You're telling me that if the Falcons didn't do it and they're not close to the brand that Dallas is, that Jerry Jones all of a sudden after subscribing to the same losing formula, mindset, and culture for the last 28, now going on 29 years, that he's all of a sudden going to suspend that and give not just hire Belichick, but give him essentially more power than he has in terms of personnel. You're telling me Jerry's going to do that? It's why I pushed back for years. Sean Payton to Dallas, Sean Payton to Dallas. It's never going to happen. It was never going to happen. I don't care that he had ties to Dallas. He was never the head coach in Dallas. The closest thing we saw to Jimmy Johnson for the Cowboys in terms of roster control was Bill Parcells, and that fizzled out when Jerry wanted Terrell Owens. This, this recording has been sourced, um, reported multiple times by, by, by respectable journalists that Jerry wanted T.O., and Parcells did not. We saw what happened because T.O. ended up being a Cowboy and having some successful years there. Parcells was out and has never coached again, or never coached again, essentially. So Belichick and Jerry is a match made in football hell. That's why he retained McCarthy. Because, by the way, Belichick's not the only attractive coach in the market. So is Pete Carroll, Vrabel for a time, Jim Harbaugh, Ben Johnson until he, more than Ben Johnson at the end of the show, uh, who turned down Washington and Seattle. He was on the market. Mike McDonald was on the market. Airbnb was on the market. A lot of guys. But Jerry went with Mike McCarthy. Because he's the yes man in the same fashion that Jason Garrett was. Now, I think McCarthy's a better coach than Garrett. Dak's been at his best under McCarthy relative to what he was under Garrett. So the Cowboys offense. So is the Cowboys consistency in the fact that they've won 12 games three years in a row. But Jerry, sorry, McCarthy submits to Jerry. Because Garrett did. And Wade Phillips did. And Shane Gailey did. That's the story of the Dallas Cowboys. In the last three decades, at least. This notion that, and, and by the way, for the record, I picked them to go to the Super Bowl this year and lose to the Chiefs. Dead wrong. Never do that again. Don't care who their quarterback is. I don't care if you put the fourth greatest quarterback ever, potentially about to be the third best quarterback ever, Patrick Mahomes, on the Cowboys. They're probably not advancing past the divisional round. Maybe they get to a conference championship game. Maybe. But the losing culture, the inability, and I hear all the time too. I hear all the time too about how, well, you know, Jerry, you say what you want about him. He's distracting. He does all these uh, press uh, appearances and all this, all that. Say what you want. Jerry Jones knows how to put together a roster. That man knows how to draft. Does he? Have you seen the Cowboys' last uh, couple drafts? Last year was a disaster. I'll get into that uh, in just a moment. But 2022 draft. They took Tyler Smith, who's been good. Uh, he's been good. But uh, beyond that, for Dallas, how has it looked? Sam Williams, bust. Jalen Tolbert, not terribly productive given where they drafted him. Jake Ferguson, good. Um, not much more than that. Uh, Matt Willetsko from South Dakota, from North Dakota. I don't even know if he's the, with the team anymore. Deron Bland, sure, but... I think we overreacted to the pick six record. He's a number two, probably more of a number three corner. Damone Clark, no. John Ridgway, no. Devin Harper, 
Uh, that's who the Cowboys took in the 2022 draft. And in 2023, one could argue, uh, I certainly would, that it was even worse. They took a kid in the first round by the name of Mozzie Smith. I remember the reaction of the Grid Network when we did our draft show vividly about uh, about nine months ago when we did a draft show, and the Cowboys fans in the building were absolutely heartbroken about the Mozzie Smith pick. Here's who else Dallas took. Here's who else they took. Luke Schoonmaker, whose most notable play this season was a play in which he came inches away from scoring against Philadelphia. That was it. That was that, that was it. Uh, you have other guys that the Cowboys drafted, such as if we have this uh, down here, uh, DeMarvion De, uh, De De Overshone. I'll pull the Kendrick Perkins there, uh, who got hurt, unfortunately, this season. But by and large, I mean, you continue to look at the list. It's it's a lot of guys who weren't terribly productive. Uh, uh, Fahoko, uh, Asim Richard, Asim Richards, Eric Scott Jr., Deuce Vaughn, who didn't get any play time, Jalen Brooks. He hasn't really hit on any of these. It kind of reminds you to a certain degree of, of the end of Al Davis's tenure in, in, in Vegas, or at the time, Oakland, where the owner has too much power, doesn't draft very well anymore, kind of hires yes-man coaches. Now, the Cowboys have compared it now compared to the Raiders then, toward the end of Al Davis's life. The Cowboys are an exceptionally better football team. There's no question about that, with better players um, and coaches. But Jerry is content with being relevant. That is his goal first and foremost. Remember that quote? I've repeated it multiple times. After the Thanksgiving win when they drubbed terrible Washington, 45-10, to 10, when you had the Cowboys play great, Dak was at the center of the MVP discussion, McCarthy, uh, some were saying, hey, what is McCarthy coach of the year? And Dolly Parton, shout out to Dolly Parton, by the way, uh, was awesome at halftime. And Jerry Jones said after the game, I cannot remember a greater day being associated with the Dallas Cowboys. This coming from a man who in the 90s, two of them with Jimmy Johnson, won three Super Bowls. He cares more about relevance than he does about winning. I don't know how much longer it's going to... Most people, I think, are on that train, but others defend Jerry. Ah, you know, he's just kind of crazy Jerry. Mm -mm. And by the way, last thing, and I'll move on to carving up the context. Uh, there's a podcast out there from an individual who used to work for the Cowboys. I don't know if he was the host of the show, the guest of a show I just saw it on social media. Um, he used to work for the Cowboys, who told a story on draft day about Stephen Jones. I'll put it this way. Uh, as bad as it is with Jerry, enjoy Jerry while you have Jerry. Because with Stephen, it is going to be exceptionally worse. Exceedingly worse is probably the better word to use. Yeah, that's uh, that's Dallas, though. And that, by the way, Jerry Jones did that interview at the Senior Bowl, so, you know. Take that what you what you will. And by the way, you know who goes to the Senior Bowl? GMs. Jerry Jones is the de facto GM of the Cowboys and is yet to get to a conference title game. I mean, Detroit beat him. Detroit has an 0-16 record on their resume in the last 29 years, and they got to a conference title game quicker than Jerry. Why? Because the ownership hired a smart GM. And by the way, an actual GM in Brad Holmes. Finally got the coach right, Dan Campbell. Dan Campbell put together a great staff with Aaron Glenn and Ben Johnson. They drafted well, and they're in the NFC title game this year. More on Ben Johnson later in the show, turning down the Washington and Seattle jobs. Okay. Oh, here we go. So, how do I enter us into this? Well, just keep it real. That's the, the best route to go, right? 
So Taylor Swift has been a massive story for almost two decades uh, in the world of music and for the last four months in the world of professional football since she started dating Chiefs tight end and, by the way, in my view, the greatest tight end ever, Travis Kelsey. If you don't think he's the greatest tight end ever, that's fine. He's certainly the greatest postseason tight end ever. The numbers bear it out. And there's been a lot of a lot of outrage and people getting really big mad about this. Is Taylor Swift's involvement with the NFL and with Kelsey and all the above. So, on a fired-up edition of Carving Up the Context, I'm excited about this one. I'm going to go all in on those who consider Taylor Swift a negative or a liability to the NFL, or more specifically, the NFL viewing experience on national television. So, as primetime Deion Sanders says, give me my theme music. On this week's edition of Carving Up the Context, we are going to be talking Taylor Swift uh, live on Carving It Up. And Taylor Swift uh, is one of the most famous human beings in the world. I would go so far as to say that currently she's probably the most famous woman on planet Earth. Uh, I, I would. There's a lot of women who have held that title in recent years. You can throw Oprah, Beyonce, maybe Rihanna. If you want to go into acting, somebody like a, a Julia Roberts or a Mer Meryl Streep. A lot of, of, of superstars. Um, that are popular worldwide here in the United States. Uh, the, they're from here in the, in the United States. Taylor Swift is obviously one of those people. Her Eras tour uh, was one of the most successful tours of all time, uh, historically. More on that uh, a, a little later. But she is dating, as we all know, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. They've been dating for about four months or so. The first time I can remember seeing that they were actually together was, I think it was week three when the Chiefs beat the Chicago Bears at Arrowhead on a, on a game on Fox. And... Ever since then, there's been a lot of outrage. They're showing Taylor Swift too much on my television. And aside for a moment, normally on Carving Up Live, like 99% of the time, I want to, at least I, I hope and believe this to be the case, that I have a diverse audience. Whether it's your background, whether it's your beliefs, whether it's just how you see the world, hopefully my, my audience is, is pretty diverse. I think we as Americans, we as, as people are a diverse group of people, um, and so I, you know the diverse society, so to speak. And I try to, to speak to everybody the same way. Um, this is not one of those days, or at least this segment is not one of those segments. I'm addressing one group and one group specifically, and that is insecure men who are outraged by Taylor Swift. So... I've been hearing, been lectured on since this Taylor Swift-Travis Kelsey relationship began this season, that they're showing Taylor Swift too much on television. I can't focus on the game because they're showing her too much in the box. Really? They're showing her too much, really? Okay, let's look at this. So the Chiefs played the Ravens on Sunday. I don't know if you heard in the AFC Championship game, the winner of that game got to the Super Bowl. By the way, the most watched AFC Championship game Ever. It got more, it got higher ratings than those Steelers Ravens AFC title games or those Manning Brady highest AFC title game, highest rate AFC title game ever. Uh, the game peaked with more than 64 million viewers uh, and on, on average hit about 55.5 million viewers. That is up 17% from last year's comparable window. Paramount Plus recording its most streamed live event of all time, and CBS still has delivered audiences of 50 plus million viewers in back to back weeks. Take a wild guess as to which game CBS did the, the week before. 
Chiefs-Bills. The Ravens-Chiefs game lasted three hours, the broadcast it is, lasted three hours and eight minutes. It's about how long an NFL game takes. Taylor Swift was shown on screen in three hours and eight minutes for 44 seconds. For context, that is, this is carving up the context after all, that is 17 seconds longer than crab cakes in Baltimore and a whopping 20 seconds more than dolphins, sharks, and jellyfish at the local aquarium in Baltimore. 44 seconds. If you look at the Chiefs' three playoff games, the game against Miami, Buffalo, Baltimore, combine the airtime of those three games, it adds up to nine hours and 17 minutes. Taylor Swift has been on screen a grand total. Keep in mind, nine hours. Two minutes and 25 seconds. If you want to do the math on that, that means she's shown on screen 0.4% of the broadcasts. The other 99.6, uh, I should say the 99.94 or 6, 99.946. Uh, you get your football. I get my football. As has always been the case. People are acting as if that all of a sudden we are like missing out on plays. Like they're they're showing Taylor's live reaction to the play as it's happening. And we just missed a Mahomes to Kelsey 30-yard bomb. Or we just missed Josh Allen fling a dart to Stephon Diggs. Or we just missed Lamar Jackson complete a pass to himself for about a 15-20 yard game. We missed that because they were showing Taylor Swift mid-play. That's what Twitter would like you to believe. That's what some on social media, some as in insecure men, because women really aren't bothered by this. Matter of fact, women are uh, more in tune to the NFL than they've ever been. I saw this today. This is the highest rated season, uh, the highest female viewership in the history of the National Football League since they started tracking that in the year 2000. Something else, too, that's worth noting. Um, by the reaction on social media, you would think that Taylor Swift is the first celebrity fan, or in her case, she's obviously romantically involved with one of the players, but still, she's obviously now a fan of the Chiefs. She's rooting for the Chiefs to win. As you would think that she's the only celebrity fan out there. That's funny. Matthew McConaughey, Texas, Eminem, Detroit Lions fan. I think about, uh, I think about um, um, Jack Nicholson with the Lakers sitting courtside. I think about Drake sitting courtside and going so far at one point in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2019 to literally give his head coach, Nick Nurse, a shoulder massage. I'm old enough to remember Spike Lee getting interviewed courtside during the game. For the record, got no issue with that. That's Spike bleeping Lee. It's one of the greatest directors in Hollywood. Massive Knicks fan. I want to know what he thinks about it. I want to know what he thinks about how the Knicks are playing or their season or what they need to do to, to win a championship or something. I want to know what Spike Lee thinks. Because it's like uh, two worlds intersect. The celebrity world, the sports world, they intertwine with that. Lil Wayne, massive Packers fan. One game this season? I think it was the game when they beat Kansas City, ironically. Lil Wayne led the team out onto the field as if he were a player, which again, I got no problem with that. That's Lil Wayne. He's one of the greatest rappers ever. Led the team out in the field. Spike Lee getting interviewed courtside by a reporter from a national TV network during the game. We're hearing Spike Lee commentary as it's happening. By the way, Toronto locally has done that with Drake in the past. 
Taylor Swift just up in the box with Miss Kelsey, with Jason Kelsey, whoever she's with. Sometimes her parents have been there enjoying her boyfriend playing football at the highest level. Oftentimes the individuals who are bothered by this, again, I want to emphasize insecure men. Um, usually the people that are bothered by her the most, they don't like her because she's everything they're not. Friendly, kind, happy, good-looking, in a good relationship, successful. She's everything that they're not. And by the way, from the personal side, I don't think there's that many celebrities in any walk of life, politics, dang sure politics, um, acting, entertainment, sports. I think sports has more great role models than all of those other avenues, my personal opinion. But look at all those. <sighs> Not that many better role models than Taylor Swift. Sustained success. She's been famous since she was a teenager. She's now in her mid-30s dating Travis Kelsey and more popular than ever. She has grown in terms of her popularity, in terms of her influence. She sings to sick kids in hospitals. She, one time, I remember years ago, invited her own fans to have to like party in her own home. She's one of the most success, um, accessible celebrities out there. Her era's tour boosted the United States economy. I hear from some of the economy, the economy. Well, Taylor Swift was pretty, pretty darn impactful in a major way, in a positive way for the American economy. And oh, by the way, this can make some people uncomfortable. She encourages young people. That 18 to 34 range. By the way, highest rated season in the NFL among people of ages 18 to 34 since 2019, so in four years. That she encourages people of that age group to you to do the most American thing you can do, and that is exercise your right to vote. A lot of people have died for that right to vote. And many walks of life, many respects. And here we are, election year 2024. I'm going to vote for the first time. It's the first election I've ever been eligible to vote in due to my age. And I'm sure the same could be said about a lot of people out there, a lot of Swifties. She got people involved in 2020. She's going to get people involved in 2024. And to some, that's kind of threatening, whether that's due to her political leanings or whatever else may make them uncomfortable. Just the fact that she's a successful uh, woman in entertainment, and she has a major influence in the United States of America. There's a lot of areas we could take this in terms of the fact that you have individuals such as, I will name them, Clay Travis um, of OutKick, who has <laughs> um, went so far as to call out Travis, Mr. Pfizer, Aaron Rodgers dubbed him, and Taylor Swift, who he called he, he called the Chiefs Yoko Ono, you know, so, you know, great, great comparison there. Um, on Christmas Day, use that comparison, and during the AFC Championship game, in a tweet where he was criticizing Lamar's triple coverage pick, the Taylor Swift Super Bowl is here. You failed America, Ravens. How did they fail America? They may have failed Baltimore. They may have failed themselves as a team by not reaching the Super Bowl. It sucks for them. They did not fail America. If you're rooting against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl because you're tired of their dominance and you're rooting for the kid Brock Purdy, Mr. Relevant, to win the Super Bowl, I get that. 
We've had a lot of Super Bowls like that. We've had a lot of underdogs going against Brady. Brady himself was an underdog to the to the Rams back in 2001. We've had plenty of underdog Super Bowls. If that's the reason you're rooting for the Niners, okay. There's a lot of people like that over the years. But if you're that threatened by a woman being shown on screen for 44 seconds, and in the totality of the nine-hour playoff run, nine-and-a-half-hour playoff run that we've seen on television this year for the Kansas City Chiefs, she's been shown for two-and-a-half minutes. She's been shown on screen for 0.4% of the Chiefs' playoff games combined. If you're threatened by that, that's probably a you problem because you are everything that she is not. Secure, happy, joyful, successful, rich, good-looking, you know, she had a couple bad relationships with men. Are you sure your relationship, if you have one that is, is good? I will leave it at that. That is it for this week's edition of Carving Up the Context. And by the way, to all those who are threatened by this, to all those who are truly to their core bothered by Taylor Swift, as someone once said, you need to calm down. Let's look at the comments here. Chloe, for the Super Bowl, Taylor needs to lead the, chief, <laughs> the Chiefs out to are you ready for it? I don't think they would do that. Uh, listen, well, of course, Lil Wayne led your Packers out, uh, which, by the way, I think is cool. Anytime I've always believed this, even as far as politics, like I was talking about the Cowboys, like a couple of times a year, they'll show the Jerry, they show Jerry Jones booth every game. And by the way, Jerry Jones isn't playing. Oh my God, we, we love the Jerry Jones shots where he, if the Cowboys are playing poorly and they show Jerry and he's just staring on the field, it's he's just like the little, like the little slap on the, the little pound on the table where he's mad or something, or you see him like cussing, taking his glasses off. Like we enjoy that. But a couple times a year, you look at Jerry's booth. That's Governor Christie, or that, that's former President Bush. Anytime politics and sports intertwine, anytime entertainment and sports intertwine, that's great. You know why it's great? Because sports, I've said this so many times, is the great unifier in America. That and music. That because when you go to a concert, uh, like I've told the story. Like I, I've went to, I went to a Luke Bryan concert over the summer. I'm going to lay all of my money on the line that I did not agree politically with virtually everybody in that room. Enjoyed every second of the concert. Loved it. Luke Bryan put on a great show because that's Luke Bryan. That's what he does. I'm sure the same could be said about Taylor Swift's tours. You know? I mean, that's there were liberals in there. There were conservatives in there. There were independents like myself in there. Liberty doesn't matter. She unites people. And by the way, you know, let's be honest about this as well. Some of this has to do with the fact that we've got more women involved now more than ever watching the NFL again, as I mentioned, the highest rated season, uh, the highest female viewership in the NFL since that was that was tracked starting in 2000, highest female viewership ever. You got young girls watching the NFL. You've got, I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard from dads, secure men, who are, who have said that, um, hey, now my girls are watching football. Now on Sundays, when the Chiefs are playing, they want to come in, and they're going to see Taylor. But they're like, and they want to see Travis as well. But they're like, hey, this is kind of interesting. More fans. Great. <laughs> that's More people involved. More people watching the biggest games of the season. Yay, that's a good thing. It's unbelievable. 
you know? By the way, someone just pointed out to me just now. Uh, then we'll move on to Bryson's best 10. Doesn't it seem like the same people that are outraged at Taylor are the same people who I have, let's be honest, owned um, for eight years that have talked about boycotting the NFL? And the ratings have never been higher. Anyways. Taylor Swift. You rock. And by the way, I, I'm not even somebody who like listened to Taylor Swift's music. Like, like, like Shake It Off. I love Shake It Off. I, I, I love Shake It Off. And that song comes to the radio. Uh, Trouble, that's one of my favorite songs. But it's like a couple, two, three, four songs. Love those. And then, you know, like some of her other music is just not for me. It doesn't necessarily fit my taste. But I don't have to go on Twitter or Instagram and say, I can't stand Taylor Swift. She sucks. She's this. She's that. Insecure people do, though. And... Listen, if if supporting Taylor Swift as a human being and supporting her right to go watch her boyfriend play a football game, if that makes me a Swifty, then gosh darn it, I'm a Swifty. And by the way, Swifties, you're welcome here on Carving It Up Live. You are more than welcome here. Moving on to Bryson's best 10. I had to get that off my chest. Um, like I said, carving up the context, Bryson's best 10. Those are both on Wednesdays. Uh, and Super Bowls in a week and a half. And, and, and I've heard people, too, complain about the Super Bowl. Oh, my God, it's Goliath versus Goliath. Those often make the best games. We've had underdogs come back and beat teams. You'll see that on this list. But by and large, it's usually big dog versus big dog. Which dog's the bigger dog? Which dog can bark the loudest, right? And we've got a great game lined up on Sunday. But the greatest games... We often look at those and we're like, okay, can it live up to that moment? Like CBS, when they, you know, do the Super Bowl, they're gonna they're gonna show uh, the Chiefs and the Niners, and they're gonna show great moments from Chiefs in previous Super Bowls and great moments from Niners, and then they're just do, gonna do like a compilation of the best plays in Super Bowl history: the David Tyree catch, Lynn Swan's catch in the '70s, Joe Montana's throw to John Taylor in the Super Bowl, uh, Malcolm Butler's pick at the one, you know, Brady's comeback against Atlanta. Like they're gonna show all these plays in this montage. And so th those are the plays we remember for the rest of our lives watching the NFL. So I thought it'd be appropriate for Bryson's best 10 uh, this week to talk about the top, my top 10 team, uh, sorry, not top 10 teams. I'm so used to saying that. My top 10 Super Bowls of all time. So let's get the background music going right now. Let's go. Here we go. Bryson's best 10. Actually, hang on just a second. Let's, let's cut that for a minute. Oop, let's a little, little DJ stop here. For some reason, the, my graphics are not on here. My graphics are nice, so let me pull these up real quick. I sincerely apologize to the odds. I got so fired up on Taylor, these darn graphics weren't weren't uh, quite ready to rock and roll. So, there we go. Let's get the graphics up on here, and then we'll talk some Super Bowl, greatest Super Bowls uh, of all time. Do we have them lined up? Here we go. All right, now, let's redo that. Bryce's best 10. 10 greatest Super Bowls of all time. Here we go. We will start... With the 10th greatest Super Bowl of all time, Super Bowl 47 between the Baltimore Ravens who beat the San Francisco 49ers 34-31 on February 3rd, 2013. That's the Super Bowl 47 is the 10th greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here is why. So, for the record, this was actually the first Super Bowl I ever watched in my life. It's the first Super Bowl I ever predicted. Ravens, 49ers. It's a wonder I didn't become a fan of one of those teams. I almost became an Hunters fan this past summer, but I opted to go with the Ravens' biggest rival, the Pittsburgh Steelers. But this looked to be kind of a dud through the first two and a half quarters. 
uh, because you have Baltimore blowing out San Francisco. At one point, Jacoby Jones caught a touchdown to end the half. Then to start the second half, had the longest kick return in not Super Bowl history, NFL history, 109 yards to the house to put the Ravens up 28-6. And likely due to the great Beyonce's halftime performance, boom, the lights go out in New Orleans for about a half hour. Well, when the lights come back on, so do the 49ers. They storm back, pulled within five. A pass by Colin Kaepernick to Michael Crabtree goes incomplete on fourth and goal uh, from inside uh, inside the 10-yard line. Uh, could have been a pass interference. May, may have not have been. It's a debatable call. And uh, there was a safety there at the end that didn't mean anything. So the Ravens were able to pull out this game. Ray Lewis went out a champion. Joe Flacco completed his January Joe resume, so to speak. His playoff numbers are off the charts. He's the Madison Bumgarner of the NFL. Joe Flacco won Super Bowl MVP, and the Ravens won their second Super Bowl title. Super Bowl 47 is the 10th greatest Super Bowl of all time. The 9th greatest Super Bowl of all time, Super Bowl 23 on January 22nd, 1989. The San Francisco 49ers beat the Cincinnati Bengals 20-16. to Super Bowl 23, the 9th greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here is why. So this is the earliest Super Bowl uh, we've got on this list. So none, none of the Super Bowls, uh, the first ones, the 10s, early 20s here with San Francisco and Cincinnati. This happened to be the third championship that Montana Walsh Rice, well, Rice got two at that point that the Niners won uh, in their incredible dynasty run in the 1980s. Joe Montana down uh, down 16-13 to 13 in the fourth quarter, leads a drive down the field, throws a touchdown pass to John Taylor with under a minute to go to win the Super Bowl. It's the moment, that and the catch of Joe Montana's career. That one, to me, uh, at least, again, I wasn't alive during that time, 1989, but that, for a lot of people, I think, was what put Joe, it was like, okay, that's the greatest quarterback of all time. Of course, Brady would surpass him a couple of decades later in virtually all of our eyes, but Joe Montana was known as Joe Cool, came in the clutch, and he did so very, in, to a large degree against a very good Bengals team, that 1998 Bengals team, one of the better teams not to win a Super Bowl. So, San Francisco winning that Super Bowl, Super Bowl 23, that is the ninth greatest Super Bowl of all time. At number eight, we now go back to the 21st century, the first Super Bowl of the 21st century. It is the Los Angeles Rams beating the Tennessee Titans 23 to 16 in Super Bowl 34. Super Bowl 34, January 30th, 2000, by the way, the eighth greatest Super Bowl of all time. And here is why. So it was the greatest like underdog Super Bowl maybe ever because you have the Tennessee Titans who are this new uh, expansion team, or not expansion team, they relocated from being the Houston Oilers. They became the Tennessee Titans. They had this magical playoff run. They had the Music City Miracle in the wild card round against Buffalo. Steve McNair, the late Steve McNair, God rest his soul, got to the Super Bowl out of the AFC. Then you have the Rams team led by this quarterback who was bagging groceries years before in Kurt Warner, wins MVP his first year, gets the, the Rams to the Super Bowl in, in the 1999 season. They go on to beat the Tennessee Titans in what's one of the greatest endings in Super Bowl history with the guy for uh, with, with the Tennessee wide receiver. I'm forgetting his name. It's not coming to my mind right now. Being tackled at the one-yard line uh, to save the game for it's probably the greatest tackle in the history of the Super Bowl, although there's one coming later that it could be argued might have been better. But it was a phenomenal ending. Kurt Warner threw the game-winning touchdown uh, toward the end of uh, the fourth quarter. To put the Rams up 23-16, the tackle at the one-yard line sealed the win for good. And the uh, Tennessee Titans were uh, have not been able to get to a Super Bowl since. The Rams have since been to two and won one since. The Rams beating the Titans Super Bowl 34, the eighth greatest Super Bowl of all time. If we can load number seven, that would be great. Uh, looks like we're having some trouble uh, technicality or te technical-wise getting number seven on there. So do we, do we have it right here? Okay, 
At number seven, the seventh greatest Super Bowl of all time. Let's pull it up right here. It is Super Bowl 57, our most recent Super Bowl, where the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35 to on February 12th, 2023. Super Bowl 57, the seventh, a little repetitive there, greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here's why. So, Kansas City had won a Super Bowl in 2019, the 2019 season. Philadelphia, two seasons removed from a four-win year, comes back in 2022, has the best defense of all time in terms of sacking the quarterback. Jalen Hurts finished second for MVP that year. To Patrick Mahomes, to the doubted Kansas City Chiefs who were home underdogs the week before in the AFC title game. Traded Tyreek Hill to get better defensively, and this was a shootout. And this was a situation where Mahomes, to this point, has been the defining moment of his career. There's been plenty of great ones where Patrick Mahomes is already dealing with an injured ankle, re-aggravated it in the first half of this football game, comes back in the second half, down 10 points, leads the Chiefs to a comeback, has a near-perfect pass rating in the second half. Chiefs go down, Mahomes on a bad ankle, runs them down to uh, down into field goal range. Harrison Bucker kicks the game-winning field goal to win it for the Chiefs, 38-35. to Jalen Hurts had a phenomenal game. I believe he accounted for four touchdowns on the afternoon in Arizona. It was a phenomenal football game. It was everything that we hoped it would be, and then some. And let's be honest, we were kind of happy to see Philadelphia crash and burn when the lights when the lights got the brightest. Everybody except for Jalen, though. Jalen was fantastic in that game. Uh, that's really that game is why I still kind of believe in Jalen, although we'll see what happens in the future of Philadelphia. Super Bowl 57, the seventh greatest Super Bowl of all time. At number six, this one kicked off a dynasty. Super Bowl 36, where the New England Patriots beat the St. Louis Rams at the St. Louis Rams at the time, 20-17 to 17 on February 3rd, 2002. Super Bowl 36, the sixth greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here's why. So, the, the maybe the most ironic Super Bowl of all time, because this was billed as the game that would kick off a dynasty. Because the Rams, as detailed earlier, had just won Super Bowl 34 over Tennessee, came back two years later, Kurt Warner won league MVP, the greatest show on turf, Marshall Falk, and obviously Kurt Warner leading the ship, and Torrey Holt, Isaac Bruce, all these dudes on offense, the, one of the greatest offenses we've ever seen in our lives. And the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, probably his best defensive performance as a head coach, holds the Rams to 17 points in the Superdome in New Orleans. As it turns out, that game did kick off a dynasty. It just wasn't the Rams. It was the double-digit underdog New England Patriots led by the sixth-round kid out of Michigan. Maybe you've heard of him. His name's Tom Brady, who played kind of average in that game. But when, it was the money, when money was on the line, about a minute to go, leads the Patriots down the field. The greatest kicker ever, Adam Vinatieri, hits the walk-off, or certainly the clutchest kicker, Adam Vinatieri, hits the walk-off field goal to win it for New England. That would be their first of six Super Bowls in the 21st century. They were able to beat the Rams, uh, who it took them a couple decades to get back to the Super Bowl, obviously with a very different cast uh, of characters. Super Bowl 36 is the sixth greatest Super Bowl of all time. Do we have number five in the list? It does not appear that we have number five in the list. If we can pull this up super fly fast. Okay, we've got it right here. At number five, the fifth greatest Super Bowl of all time is Super Bowl 52, where the Philadelphia Eagles beat the New England Patriots 41-33. to High-scoring affair on February 4th, 2018. Super Bowl 52, the fifth greatest Super Bowl of all time. And here is why. So... Oftentimes, great Super Bowls tend to have great moments, great plays that we look back and we we remember it on like one line. Like if somebody tells you, Eagles fan or not, somebody says Philly special, you know exactly what they're talking about. Maybe the gutsiest call in Super Bowl history, where the Eagles, big underdogs, backup quarterback Nick Foles, taking on the defending champion New England Patriots, Tom Brady, won league MVP, his last league MVP at age 40. 
and they're facing the Patriots. They're up 15 to 12 late in the first half. They got a fourth and goal from the one yard line. Not only does Doug Peterson decide to go for it, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to snap the football to our running back. He's going to toss it to our backup tight end, who's going to then throw it to our quarterback. And the play was executed to perfection in Minneapolis. Uh, it was really the catalyst of what got the Philadelphia Eagles over the top. Nick Foles ended up leading a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter with throwing a touchdown pass to Zach Ertz. Uh, it was the greatest effort from a quarterback I've ever seen in a Super Bowl loss. Tom Brady throwing for over 500 yards, three touchdowns, had one costly turnover at the end on the strip sack by Brandon Graham, recovered by a Tennessee guy, go balls, Derek Barnett. And the Philadelphia Eagles, and what was one of, I was a Cowboys fan at the time, one of the most miserable Super Bowls I've ever watched, the Eagles were able to pull out of that game 41-33 to and win the franchise's first ever title. Super Bowl 52, the fifth greatest Super Bowl of all time. At number four, it is the New York Giants beating the New England Patriots in the first go-around, Super Bowl 42, 17-14 on February 3rd, 2008. Super Bowl 42, the fourth greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here's why. Man, the story lines were rich with this one you had for the new england patriots a team attempting to be the first ever to go 19 and 0 16 and 0 the regular season won their two playoff games with one of the greatest offenses we've ever seen mvp of the league tom brady who broke the record at the time for most touchdown passes in a season randy moss who broke the record uh in 2007 for most touchdown catches in a single season it was one of the most unstoppable offenses with a great defense that we've ever seen in the history of the nfl they go 18 and 0 they're massive favorites in this game against the new york giants and one of the great stories in super bowl history was when i believe it was plaxico burris who talked about he predicted a fight he predicted obviously the giants to win wide receiver for the giants predicted the giants to win the football game i think he said something like the patriots would score 17 20 points something like that tom brady was asked about it during that week and he famously said we're only gonna score it was either 17 or 20 we either gonna we're, we're only gonna score 17 or 20 whatever plaxico burris suggested as it turns out, Tommy actually got less than that. He only got 14 points and a touchdown pass from Brady to Moss put the Patriots up late in the game, uh, 14 to 10 with two minutes and change to go. And Michael Strahan, who that ended up being as the final game of a great Hall of Fame career, uh, followed by obviously another great Hall of Fame career in television. But Michael Strahan tells the Giants offense on the, on the sideline before they come out for their last drive, Giants win 17-14. Believe it, and it will happen. And sure enough, Eli Manning leads the Giants. And that play <laughs> highlighted by maybe the greatest catch in Super Bowl history, the helmet catch by David Tyree over Rodney Harrison on third and long, by the way, where Eli Manning breaks out of a sack. Looks like it's going to be fourth and a mile. He just throws up a prayer in the air. Here comes David Tyree. Basically, it's like the, the football's glued onto his helmet, pins it against his head. couple plays later, Eli Manning throws the game-winning touchdown to Plaxico Burris to win the Super Bowl for the Giants. It was their third title in franchise history, and they ended the Patriots' hopes of a perfect season. Super Bowl 42, the fourth greatest Super Bowl of all time. At number three, undeniably, nobody would argue this, the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Super Bowl 51, where the New England Patriots beat the Atlanta Falcons 34-28, to February 5th, 2017. Super Bowl 51, the third greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here is why. So, I mean, it's self-explanatory at this point, right? If you if you didn't watch the game, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, New England, 14-2 during the regular season. Tom Brady, four-game suspension, one of the worst four-game, biggest sham four-game suspensions I've seen in my life for Deflategate. Here comes Atlanta. 
Kind of an underdog story, right? Young defense, young coach Dan Quinn. Matt Ryan wins MVP. It's a lot of great storylines in Houston, Texas. And the Falcons jumped all over the New England Patriots. They at one point had a pick six toward the end of the first half on Tom Brady. They're up 28-3 to with about two minutes and change. As late as two minutes and change left in the third quarter, the Patriots go down, get a touchdown to James White, 28-9. They go down, get a field goal by Steven Kostowski, 28-12. After a forced fumble by Dante Hightower, they get a touchdown and a two-point conversion. The touchdown was caught by Danny Amendola, 28-20. After a series of penalties, knocked the Falcons out of field goal range their next drive. Brady leads the Patriots on a long drive to tie the game. James White punches in the touchdown, and I think Amendola got the two-point conversion, 28-28. And the Patriots won the coin toss at that point. Even Falcons knew what was going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. James White scores a touchdown at the end of the game to win it for New England in what was the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. To that point, the record for comebacks was 10 points in the Super Bowl. Brady and the Patriots almost, or, sorry, more than doubled it to 25 points. They did so all in about a 17-minute stretch to tie the game and obviously won it in overtime. It's the crowning achievement of Tom Brady's career. It's what put him, cemented him as the greatest quarterback of all time, gave him his fifth Super Bowl title. The tandem between him and Belichick got number five as well. One of the craziest sequences I've ever seen. I, mean, I woke up the next day. I'll never forget. I didn't think I'd just seen what I just saw, but it was the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Super Bowl 51, the third greatest Super Bowl of all time. At number two, it involves my team. I just wasn't a fan of them uh, at this particular juncture in time. The Pittsburgh Steelers beating the Arizona Cardinals 27 to 23 in Super Bowl 43, February 1st, 2009. Super Bowl 43, the second greatest Super Bowl of all time. And here is why. So, Man, this is a good one. Where you had five-time champion Pittsburgh Steelers, no-time champion, no-time Super Bowl appearance team in the Arizona Cardinals who historically have been kind of a national joke, but they bring in Kurt Warner, who who ends up winning the starting job from Matt Leinart uh, over the course of that season and previous seasons, leads the Cardinals to the Super Bowl. Larry Fitzgerald, one of the greatest receivers in the modern era, has a great postseason. Pittsburgh Great defense, has this great run, gets to the Super Bowl. The best play, there's a lot of great plays in this game. You could talk about the Fitzgerald long touchdown that put the Cardinals up with about two, three minutes to go. You can talk about the San Antonio Holmes Holmes game-winning touchdown catch, the greatest, as Nate Burleson would say it, toe-drag swag in Super Bowl history in the back corner of the end zone to win it for Pittsburgh. For my money, it's the James Harrison full length of the field pick six. End of the first half, Cardinals are driving, opportunity to go up on Pittsburgh. Kurt Warner throws a pick to defensive lineman, outside linebacker James Harrison, who's built like a truck for crying out loud, literally to this day. You should watch his workout videos or insanity. And James Harrison not only gets the pick, which takes seven points away from Arizona, but returns it 99 yards to the house to give the Steelers another seven points. It's really like one of the only 14-point plays in Super Bowl history to a certain degree. That's what catapulted the Steelers. Of course, you have the game-winning drive. Ben Roethlisberger to San Antonio Holmes for the Steelers to win Super Bowl 43. Kurt Warner, that ended up being his final Super Bowl. He retired a couple of years after that. Larry Fitzgerald didn't get that many postseason opportunities after that. That's why you never know. When you get to the Super Bowl, you got to capitalize on your moment because you never know when or if you could get back. Super Bowl 43, the second greatest Super Bowl of all time. That leaves at number one. My favorite Super Bowl I've ever watched in my life is yet to be surpassed. Maybe Chiefs Niners does it this year. We'll see. At number one, Super Bowl 49 on February 1st, 2015 where the New England Patriots beat the Seattle Seahawks 28-24. Super Bowl 49, the greatest Super Bowl of all time, and here is why. So, 
Listen, that in almost a similar way as Super Bowl 36, the Patriots' first title in the Brady-Belgic era, was like a, a game. Again, similar, it was like, okay, Seattle's going to kick off their dynasty. They had been the defending Super Bowl champions the year before in 2013. They'd waxed the Broncos and Peyton Manning. Here they come, Legion of Boom, beat up Legion of Boom, but still Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Bobby Wagner, all those dudes on that Seattle defense. Offensively, beast mode, Marshawn Lynch, Russell Wilson had a good season that year. Pete Carroll done a great job, as he often does. Uh, New England got into the Super Bowl. They had started off 2-2. Two and two. There was the whole thing. Hey, will the Patriots bench Tom Brady for Jimmy Garoppolo? Belichick snickered at that question. Would go on to say in another press conference, we're on to Cincinnati. And the Patriots ended up going on to the Super Bowl. They trailed by double digits in the fourth quarter to Seattle. Uh, 24-14. Brady led a touchdown drive to cut it to three. Touchdown pass to Julian Edelman. Led another drive, which ended up being the game-winning drive with two minutes and change to Julian Edelman. But that wasn't it. Seahawks go down the field. It's aided by one of the wildest catches you'll ever see by Jermaine Curse, number 15 for Seattle. They run the ball with Marshawn Lynch down to the one-yard line, and then maybe the most infamous play in Super Bowl history happens, the most shocking play, Patriots fan, Seahawks fan, or otherwise, in Super Bowl history. The Seahawks do not give the ball to beast mode at the one on second and goal. Russell Wilson throws what was a good throw and a well-executed play by Seattle to Ricardo Lockett, the Seahawks receiver. And this kid, undrafted rookie free agent by the name of Malcolm Butler, steps in, picks off the pass. There's a story about how he learned that that pass was coming that is worth uh, your attention. I think it was in some Patriots documentary, Do Your Job, back in the day. Butler picks off the pass at the one. The Patriots win the game. It ends up being Brady's fourth ring, uh, fourth ring of his career, third Super Bowl MVP. It vanquishes any hope of a dynasty in Seattle. It actually continued the dynasty for the New England Patriots. That was one of the great moments in the history of sports was the pick at the one-yard line, depending on your point of view. Uh, certainly, if you're a Seahawks fan, you don't feel that way. But there you go, Super Bowl 49, the greatest Super Bowl of all time. There you go. Now, I don't have the graphic here, so I can just read off my notes. But uh, we've had some great ones, man. And a lot of these have been 21st century uh, games. A, because I just simply think that the games were more entertaining. And, and, and B, uh, because I don't really have that many highlights. Or it, it, not even necessarily this that. But some of these like lower scoring, like Super Bowl three. I know some would argue Jets fans would say, hey, that's Joe Namath guaranteed the win over the, the at the time, the Baltimore Colts. I get that. Uh, but it was 16 to seven. There was like, maybe it's just relative to how I view football today as an offensive game with some great defense on the side. But uh, there you go. So from 10 to 1, my top 10 Super Bowls of all time, I've got uh, Super Bowl 47, Ravens beat the Niners, Super Bowl 23, Niners beat the Bengals, Super Bowl 34, Rams beat the Titans, Super Bowl 57, Chiefs beat the Eagles, uh, Super Bowl 36 uh, at number 6, the Patriots beat the Rams. At number 5, Super Bowl 52, Eagles beat the Patriots. At number 4, Super Bowl 42, Giants beat the Patriots. At number 3, Super Bowl 51, Patriots beat the Falcons. At number 2, Super Bowl 43, Steelers beat the Cardinals. And at number 1, Super Bowl 49, Patriots beat the Seahawks. And by the way, that's when the Deflategate story happened too. It was two weeks prior to that game which is one of the most ridiculous scandals in the history of major American professional sports. I could do a whole podcast on that, but there you go. So hopefully, I mean, listen, last year's Super Bowl made the list, Chiefs-Eagles. Hopefully get ones uh, like that. I considered Chiefs-Niners just because it did kick off a Kansas City dynasty, but I'm like, eh, 
not to say it wasn't entertaining. It was very entertaining. It's the first Super Bowl I ever covered on Carving It Up back in 2020, but I don't know. There was some good, the other pretty good ones in there. So there you go. Bryson's best 10 Super Bowls of all time. Before we get out of here, uh, we can already say what the greatest uh, acquisition or even maybe non-acquisition, I guess you could say, for an NFL team has been for their offseason. The offseason has officially started because we still have one more game left. But the Detroit Lions were notified through Ben Johnson contacting the Washington Commanders and the Seattle Seahawks that he would not be taking either job, which means he is coming back to be the offensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions in 2024. And I'm here to tell you right now, sitting here today on January 31st, 2024, that the Detroit Lions will be in the, in the NFC title game in January of 2025. It's health permitting, knock on wood. So you retain Ben Johnson, best offensive coordinator in football, Dan Campbell's still there, and and listen, I've heard a lot of folks say, like, because Dan Campbell alluded to the fact that, hey, we may never get back because it is really hard to get to this point to the NFC title game, and some have been like, hey, they might not. Like, it's maybe they let complacency get to them. There's going to be more eyeballs onto the Detroit Lions in 2024. I, we, we get that, but if there's any coach that's going to have his team ready to go with expectations, it's Dan Campbell because a lot of the guys coming back were on those that, that 2021 Lions team, and even 2022, that had no expectations. Nobody thought they'd be any good. Even this year, there were some doubters, some skeptics out there that didn't know if Detroit could make any sort of serious run. And so if there's anybody have the team ready to go, it's Dan Campbell. If there's any offensive coordinator who's going to be able to put the, uh, the players on that side of the ball in the best position to be successful, it is Ben Johnson. You'll keep Jared Goff. You have Jameer Gibbs. You have Sam Laporta. Two of those guys are going to be going into year two. Uh, you still have Amon Ross St. Brown. You're going to have to pay sooner rather than later, but you still got him. Jamison Williams is young. Like, you've still got some excellent talent in the offensive side of the ball. They improved defensively. If you look at the numbers from last season to this season, there still needs to be some work for the Lions uh, on defense. Obviously, Aiden Hutchinson, we know he, who he is and what he represents. Uh, they've got the kid, uh, Anzalone, who's a really good linebacker. They need to address the secondary. I could see Detroit drafting a corner in the first round, really going heavy defense because offense, offense is not the Lions' problem at all. Maybe they address it in the trade market in free agency the same way they did by adding C.J. Gardner-Johnson, maybe. But I, I could see them doing that. But ultimately, this is massive for the Lions. You say, well, yes, they'll be a good team. Yes, they'll be motivated. But who's to say that they'll get back? To which I would say... Look, we got to see how the offseason plays out. You know, we we don't free agency doesn't start until like mid March. The draft isn't till late April. So there's a lot of dominoes still remaining that, that still need to be uh, that still need to fall. But you look at the NFC, barring some major change. Okay, the Niners are going to be the favorites in 2024 as they should be. It's the best roster in football, certainly in the NFC. Best team in the NFC as they proved all season long, and by winning the conference. You look down the list, Dallas. Isn't the, isn't the narrative with the Cowboys, and it's a true one, by the way, that, uh, oh, they just somehow find a way to screw it up in the playoffs. They always find a way to screw it up in either the wild card or divisional round. You know, I said this year, Dallas, it was a do or do not season. The old Yoda quote from the Empire Strikes Back. It was do not. I said, this is going to be boomer bust. They're going to make this great run or go absolutely nowhere. It's not going to be a situation where they like win a playoff game, get to the NFC title game. No, no, no. They're either going to get to or win the Super Bowl or miss the playoffs or go one and done. And it ended up being, unfortunately for Dallas, uh, the latter. Dallas is not getting to the NFC title game. Tampa Bay, fun, great story. If they win the NFC South, won't shock me in the slightest. Baker Mayfield should get extended. They're not going to the NFC title game. Philadelphia, 
Well, Philadelphia will have a better defense because they hired Vic Fangio. That helps. But Nick Sirianni's still there. And they just hired Kellen Moore to be their new OC. So needless to say, the offense will be, well, let's just say it'll underachieve. Philly's not going to the NFC title game. The Rams are the one team that I could see being a serious threat to to the to the Lions. I mean, after all, they did only lose by a point in that playoff game. And if they convert in the red zone against Detroit, they probably win that game. So the Rams aren't fall off. They've drafted well. No reason to believe that Les Snead uh, won't ace the draft again and that Sean McVay won't get the best out of what he has. But the Rams, I could see being a threat, but I still think Detroit's a little bit better. Green Bay is still, they're still, we forget, this is the youngest playoff team since the 1974 Buffalo Bills. So, and listen, if, if, if Green Bay gets back to playoffs, nobody, myself included, will be shocked at all, given the, the strides we saw Jordan Love tank, the strides we saw this offense take in 2023. But again, it's sort of a situation like Detroit where now there's expectations for Jordan Love. Can you take that next step? Uh, you have sort of the proverbial ghost of Favre and Rodgers. If you want to go back further, star looming over Jordan Love uh, right now. So I don't think Green Bay is a Super Bowl contender. That's that's where I would go on that. New Orleans is in cap hell, and they don't have the right coach. Minnesota would have to make a drastic change, and I like Cousins, but they're going to have to make a drastic change at the quarterback position for me to believe in them. Chicago should draft Caleb Williams, even if they do, not a contender. Atlanta, no. Giants, Washington, Arizona, Carolina. So like none of those teams are, are, are serious contenders. So... I mean, the Niners will be the favorites, and Detroit should be number two over Dallas. The Rams, the only team where I'd be like, okay, if if we if we if we a year from now Rams beat the Lions in Detroit or in LA, won't sh- won't shock me at all. If Dallas wins, I'll be a little surprised. If Tampa Bay wins, you know that's that's different. Green Bay even, but you basically keep everybody. You got a draft. You'll have free agency. And you'll and listen the way that team is wired because of Dan Campbell. Will they not be as motivated as ever to to after they blew that 17-point lead against San Francisco on Sunday? Won't they be let that just just burn in in their in their gut, in their soul all offseason and then take it out in the rest of the league and, and try and make another playoff run in, in the 2024 playoffs? I don't know. When I saw that, I'm like, okay, Detroit's back in the NFC title game. That was my reaction. It feels like we're gonna get a rematch. Niners Detroit in the NFC title game, probably in San Francisco, or although who knows, maybe Detroit ends up jumping them in the standings this season. We'll see, but that'll certainly be fun. No question about that. In case you can't tell over the last nine months or so, I'm a big believer on, on how Detroit does business, both on the field and in the front office. They, they ace that stuff. No question about it. All right. That is all the time we have for today's show. Appreciate everybody stopping by. Be sure to catch Carving Up Live on Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on Twitter, as well as the Carving It Up YouTube channel and the Grid Network. YouTube channel. And as always, be sure to like, share, comment. And take two seconds out of your day, please. Please hit that big red subscribe button down there if you're on YouTube. It helps the channel grow exponentially. We're trying to get to 1,000 subscribers by Super Bowl 58, which is February the 11th. So we're getting close. So if we can get that number to 1,000, that would mean the world. If you have subscribed, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Please tell your friends about it, your family about it, everybody you know about Carving It Up Live. We would greatly appreciate it. If you have not subscribed, Hey, like I said, just takes a couple seconds. Become part of the Carving Up family. That subscribe button down there. Hit it, and you're part of the Carving Part of the Carving It Up family. That includes you, Swifties. Like I said earlier, you are welcome here. All right. See you on Friday. Maybe a little LeBron Warriors trade rumors talk. Maybe we'll see. But uh, you know, a lot, lot's gonna happen. Let's just put it this way. I'm gonna be rooting for the Celtics. 
Very hard tomorrow night. Go Boston, okay? Let's go Celtics. Let's make the Lakers' season worse and see if they can trade LeBron to Golden State. I do believe that's gonna that, that has a possibility of happening. I'll detail that as well as a lot more sports topics on Friday. So stay safe out there. Please be sure to take care of your physical as well as your mental health. And please, please, please be sure to contact your local state representatives and senators to demand change for gun violence in America. We have got to address this problem as soon as we can. Oh, and I almost forgot. I almost forgot. I almost forgot this. Be sure to go subscribe. Just as important to my as, as subscribe to my show. Just as important. Be sure to go subscribe to the Grid Network. That is GRYD, the Grid Podcast Network, right here on YouTube, as well as any and everywhere you get your favorite podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, any and everywhere you get your favorite podcast. We'll see you on Friday. No NFL games to predict. And I'm not predicting the Pro Bowl, by the way. The Pro Bowl flag football game. Not going to do that. Not doing that. Very excited, though. See y'all then. Stay safe out there. God bless y'all. Peace out. Because the player's going to play. Thanks so much for watching the show on YouTube. And be sure to go click that big red subscribe button and check out the other clips and full shows from Carving It Up Live as well as our other incredible content creators here on the Grid Network.